Welcome back to another episode of The Bible Unmuted. My name is Matt Halstead, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. In this episode, we're in for a treat because we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth. Dr. Hollingsworth is a good friend of mine. We've known each other for a number of years, and I think he's going to have some great things to say to us today because as a theologian, he's going to offer some thoughts on theology proper, and he's going to define theology for us, and he's even going to talk about theological method and how all of that relates to biblical studies and reading scripture and interpreting scripture. We have a fun conversation, and it's 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 something that I think... Um, uh, there's a lot to take away from here because there's so many resources that are mentioned. There's so many names of scholars that are mentioned. There's so many books that are discussed and philosophers and theologians that we chat about that I think it's just, this is just an episode that I think um, is is going to give listeners, give all of us a lot of things to consider down the road. Even, even after you've listened to this, you may want to come back and listen to it again because uh, Andrew is, is such a, a keen, careful thinker, and he's done a lot of work. He's published uh, a couple of books on theology and theological method. He's got about a billion peer-reviewed journal articles that he's published in, in great journals. And so it's a treat to have him on the show. And I often have thought, um, yeah, well, let me back up. You know, this is a show that's about biblical studies. And we're in the Bible. We exegete scripture. We pay attention to every verse. And we, we you know, we're just in the text a lot. So this is a biblical studies podcast, by and large. It's also a hermeneutics podcast. We talk a lot about hermeneutics and interpretation, interpretive theory and whatnot. But we also talk about coherent thinking, right? We have to think about scripture and the data of the text in a way that's coherent. And we've talked about that a lot. And so in light of that, I thought it would be beneficial to bring on a theologian who can offer some thoughts on how to take biblical data and construct it coherently and why we should even bother constructing, you know, scripture coherently. Um, We talk in this episode about other things as well, namely the role of tradition in interpreting scripture. We talk about the role of reason. What role does human reason play in our interpretation of scripture and in the formation of our theology? Um, all of those are discussed, and you know, I should say that um, Andrew and I don't agree on everything, and you'll you'll see some of that come through here. Um, and but at the end of the day, we um, hold very dear the the essentials of the Christian faith, and we are really great friends, and have been for a long time, and will always be great friends as brothers in Christ. And uh, so, anyway, this is just such a, a fun uh, discussion that we had. It was fun for me to have it, and I pray that um, this this conversation is a blessing to you. I pray that it gives you yet further tools for your toolbox as you go about studying Scripture, reading Scripture, and honoring God with your life and with your ministry. What is theology? Have you ever thought about that question before? Theology, simply put, is basically just this, thoughts about God. The word theology comes from theos, which means God and logos, which means reason or words. And so theologos, we get our word theology. I bet you have a theology, but you have thoughts about God. So what is your theology? Where did you get your theology? Many Christians say that they get their theology from the Bible. But how does that work? After all, theology is not just something we get by ourselves, right? The churches and the denominations we grew up in, the books and the commentaries we read, 
and the families we grew up in, all of these are, in a sense, part of our tradition, uh, the tradition that shapes the way we read our Bible and hence the way we get our theology. So to discuss this topic today, I'm joined with my friend and colleague, Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth, a professor at Bruton Parker College. Andrew has done a lot of work in theology and theological methods, so it's a joy to have him on the show today. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me on, Matt. No, it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad uh, glad our schedule's finally aligned for us to do this. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's going to be super fun. I'm, I'm I'm stoked about the whole conversation we're going to have. So, if you would um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So, as you said, my name is Andrew Hollingsworth. Um, I am an assistant professor of theology and Christian philosophy at Bruton Parker College and our seminary, Temple Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I teach courses under the topics of systematic theology, philosophy of religion, Christ- Christian philosophy. At the undergraduate level, I also teach courses in the Old and New Testament. Um, I teach a historical Jesus course. I really enjoy that. Um, I've got a couple of books I've written. Um, I've got uh, my first book was called God in the Labyrinth, the Semiotic Approach to Christian Theology, and it's a book version of my dissertation. I've done an edited collection with Fortress Academic on the Enduring Promise of Wolfhart Pannenberg's Theology, and it's called Theology for the Future. Um, I have a forthcoming edited book with uh, R.T. Mullins of Luce- University of Lucerne and Palm Beach Atlantic. Uh, this is a four views book, and we're looking at four views on the incarnation, the metaphysics of the incarnation, and we have some great contributors with that, with Tim Paul and Andrew Loke and C. Stephen Evans and Joseph Jedwab. Uh, I've published, uh, I think it's around 16 papers now in peer-reviewed journals, um, Irish Theological Quarterly, Neuzeit Script for Systematic Theology and Religions Philosophy, Philosophia Christi, and I have uh, forthcoming papers with Faith and Philosophy and the Journal of Analytic Theology, and I've had a couple of papers published now in Theologica, which is an international journal of philosophy of religion and philosophical theology. Um, I'm a member of First Baptist Church Mandeville, and I mention that because I see that as very important to my teaching ministry. I actually teach a Sunday school class there, and the very content that I teach there is the lectures for my graduate-level systematic theology one and two courses. And when I'm done going through this material, the people love it. They're hungry for it. So if you're listening and you're wondering how to get more biblical or theological education in the church, Sunday school is primary primary way to do that, and it's wonderful. The people love it. They're hungry. And after we're done doing this, I think we're going to do some biblical hermeneutics and and, uh, and then after that, some historical Jesus stuff. Um, so that's a little bit about me. And uh, I did my Ph.D. at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary under Ryan Putman. Um, wonderful experience. I got such a great education there. And yeah, duh, this and I've become friends with Matt for a few years now through the Evangelical Theological Society and our interest in theology and hermeneutics. And so, yeah, I guess that's all there really is to uh, to know about me. No, that's great. Uh, I, I often tell people, Andrew, you're my favorite theologian. And I do mean that because it's, oh, we we talk about all kinds of fun things. And I mean, we've talked about everything, it seems like, so through, through the years. So it's it's fun to um, it's fun to have you on the show because it's fun to introduce one friend to other friends. So, um, oh, and one thing I forgot to mention. Um, yeah. I am married to an incredible woman, uh, Katie, who is a nurse practitioner, and we have a beautiful and just incredible 14-month-old boy, and his name is William Rex, and he's uh, 
those are the definitely apart from the Lord himself, the two best things in my life. I love being a professor. I love being a theologian and a philosopher, but they just don't compare to being a husband and a, a father. So mm, that's so good. So good. Well, um, so, so this show is, it's all about getting back to scripture, um, digging deep into scripture's original context and and whether that be it's ancient near Eastern context or it's Greco Roman context, whatever. Um, that, that's that's what the the show is all about. But I'm I'm also a firm believer that scripture must speak to our modern questions, and that, that's why we call the show the Bible unmuted. It has to speak to our present questions in our world. Um, so I want to just start off with a question: um, How can theology do that? How can theology help in that um, endeavor? Yeah, so I think it can help uh, in several ways. But first and foremost. I think it's good for us to kind of reflect a little bit more on like what exactly theology is, as you mentioned already. It's kind of like our reasoning or our words about God. But first and foremost, at least in the academic contest, context, not contest, uh, theology is a science. Uh, it comes from the German idea of, and by science, I mean a Wissenschaften, like from German, and from the German idea. It's not just a natural science. Wissenschaften, it's a, a a rational reflection and reasoning on some given topic or subject is what a vision often is, and it's systematically ordered. And so when we say that theology is a science, we mean specifically that it's the science of God, and it's the rational reflection and reasoning about God. It's our attempts to somehow make the best sense of God or what we believe to be God. And it's and we do this to the best that we can with some of the important organizing principles that are intrinsic to theology. Now, as Christians, we also believe, uh, especially as evangelical Christians, that God has revealed himself uh, to his creatures. And he has done this in two ways. He's done this universally through human consciousness and through nature itself. We Theologians like to call this God's general or universal revelation. And he's also revealed himself in particular unique events of history, such as the Exodus event where he delivers Israel from Egypt. He has done this in the Christ event where he became incarnate in Christ and raised him from the dead. Uh, we refer to this as special or particular revelation. And as the evangelicals, we like to add to this scripture as part of a means of God's particular revelation. And we believe that God has inspired the Israelite prophets and Jesus apostles to record his God's dealings with them. And we also believe that God was at work in these authors in such a way that the very texts that they produced are also inspired of God, being his very words. And we believe that God has inspired these texts down to the very words and expressions that the authors, namely Israel's prophets and Jesus' apostles, uh, chose. So since God's written record of his revelation in history is itself a medium of revelation, uh, it's important for us to look to it as much as we do the historical events themselves. Um, so if we want to discern what God has revealed uh, about himself in the written record of his revelation in these historical events, such as the Exodus and the Christ events, then this is going to require hermeneutics on our part. From the beginning to the end of the theological process of doing theology, theology is always an endeavor in hermeneutics. Theology can actually help us think clear about Scripture itself, since it is a theology of the nature of Scripture that actually leads us to want to take it and read it to begin with. Even our motivations for understanding Scripture correctly are both hermeneutical and theological motivations. 
So I personally think that the better we are at theology, then the better we are going to be at reading Scripture. And we might even say that the relationship between Scripture and theology, it's kind of like a hermeneutic circle. As Scripture continues to inform our theology, so our theology is going to help us better read and interpret Scripture. And that's going to continue to help us reinform and reinforce our theology. And this is going to go on ad infinitum until we meet Jesus and no longer see through the glass dimly. So I think that's just uh, one way that theology can help us be better readers of Scripture. Yeah, and, and so like in the academic world, there, there's a difference between biblical studies and theology. And sometimes scholars in, in one area can can become so entrenched in their field that they forget to dialogue with someone in the other area. So a biblical scholar may not always be in dialogue uh, with a theologian and, and vice versa. So in your mind, what's the danger of doing that in biblical studies on the one hand and theology on the other? Right. Well, the phenomenon you've you've acknowledged is not an unnoticed phenomenon, as you well know. Joel Green is one New Testament scholar who has seen the problem here. It's one of the reasons why he, he that motivated him to help start the Two Horizons commentary series, where you have biblical material like on the front end like strict biblical commentary and kind of like a theological implications on the back end but having said that i think it's really helpful for us to recall something that's very important and it was uh, said by the late evangelical theologian john webster and he said that the highest form of theology is biblical exegesis uh, any theology that is not being informed for the bible is really not going to be worth our time so one would think that, especially for us evangelicals, that biblical exegesis and biblical studies are always going to be informing our theology and even our theological method. However, theology is always also informing our exegesis, whether we realize it or not. Um, one, one thing that the great hermeneutic thinkers such as uh, Schleiermacher, Diltai, Heidegger, Gadamer, and Ricoeur have really taught us as we think about the nature of interpretation and understanding is that all readers are going to bring pre-understandings or pre-judgments the, with them to the interpretative task. Anytime we read any text, we have a host of pre-judgments or pre-understandings about the world, about the text itself, about what we've been told this text means. We bring to this, and we always read Scripture or any text through those lens. So the question then becomes whether or not we're actually bringing good or bad theology with this, because a lot of these pre-understandings are theological pre-understandings. So for example, you know, I remember, I remember when I came to, to know Christ and I wanted to start getting serious about reading my Bible. Well, I brought this pre-understanding of the Bible as God's inspired inerrant word of God. And I still believe that, obviously. I think the Bible teaches that it's those things. But I brought that to the Bible and those that theological understanding was really helping guide how I read the scriptures. So we're always bringing theology to the task, but we, we need to stop and ask the question, are we bringing good or bad theology to the task of exegesis? I think that good theology results from kind of a continuous dialogue between scripture, philosophy, uh, especially logic and philosophy, and the church's dogmatic traditions. So contrary to what some biblical scholars might think, the study of the Bible actually didn't begin with us, nor did it begin with the Enlightenment. And I don't say that to just poke fun at the biblical scholars. I think a lot of Christians read the Bible thinking they're the first to read this or to get this insight, but that's not necessarily true. Though I personally think that the Enlightenment 
might have done more good than it did bad for our study of hermeneutics in general, modernist philosophers and thinkers were not the first ones to read the Bible and or think about God. Schleiermacher wasn't the first person to think about the Bible. Neither was Jonathan Edwards. Uh, neither were any of these people during the Enlightenment period. So uh, I think it did more good than it did bad for us. And I think this happened for, and also I think it's important to note that the Bible was read and interpreted uh, critically and theologically for many generations before the Enlightenment. This happened for many centuries before them with pre-Christian Jewish scholars and readers, the apostles themselves, patristic Christians, and the medieval Christians. The more informed we are on the basic principles of philosophy, namely logic and historical theology, the more we know about the history of our doctrines and how they've developed, we're going to be more prepared uh, to interpret Scripture well when we approach the task of reading Scripture. So those who have read Scripture before us can serve as a guide for us so as to know which pitfalls to avoid. This is one reason why we study Arianism and historical theology and church history, so we know not to make the same mistakes with the Bible that Arians made. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, all those church fathers before us always got the Bible right when they were interpreting it. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't be Protestants. We would we would remain Roman Catholics if we thought they got everything right beforehand, right? So those who have read, uh, so I, I have many differences, for example, with the hermeneutics and exegetical strategies and some of the conclusions of some early Christians. For example, I disagree with how Augustine interprets the Bible about original sin and and predestination and such. Nothing against you Augustine lovers. Augustine's great. I read Augustine regularly, and I'm going to encourage my son to read Augustine once he's old enough to know that he exists and read words. Now, however, being unaware of the work of these thinkers, though, that's actually going to make us ill-prepared for the task of reading Scripture, because if we're not aware of the mistakes that have been made in the past and of the successes that have been had in the past, we're not going to to be able to approach Scripture really well, and we're not going to be able to approach it humbly, I think. At the same time, though, there's actually a lot of theologians today who they love to read the Bible with origin, Augustine, the Cappadocians, Athanasius, Thomas Aquinas, and the so-called Great Tradition, and it is a great tradition, but they are just almost ignorant of the insights rendered by contemporary biblical scholars and biblical theologians. Systematic theologians who fail to engage modern biblical scholarship and biblical theology, I think, run a really high risk of neglecting a large portion of the church's tradition. I mean, isn't the so-called great tradition supposed to be a living and continuing tradition? You and I matter as much a part of that tradition as St. Augustine and the Cappadocians were. Not saying that we're as smart as them, though clearly Matt is. I'm definitely not. Um, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, just in but, case nobody. But, but we in case part, there's confusion, I'm not as smart as Aquinas. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but we are part of this tradition as well. And as a result, uh, many of these theologians who love to read the Bible with the church fathers, with the reformers, with the medievals, they love to read the Bible with them, but they're ignorant of key and important aspects of the grammatical and historical context, apart from which these biblical texts can't be properly or rightly interpreted. And that's because as smart as the patristics were and the medievals were, they didn't always think in terms of what we do now with grammatical and historical exegesis, which is not sufficient all on its own to read the Bible, but I think we need to at least begin there. Um, so there definitely needs to be this kind of ongoing and continuous dialectic, I think, between biblical studies, biblical theology, historical theology, 
philosophy, philosophy of religion, philosophical theology, and systematic theology. I think if we are really going to be good interpreters of scripture, we've we've got to read the Bible on its own terms, using good grammatical and historical exegesis, but we've also got to read it with the tradition. And we also need to read it uh, with using the best tools we have from contemporary philosophy, which I personally think this day, and this might be the most controversial thing I say today, but I think those best philosophical tools are probably going to come from our Christian analytic philosophers. Hmm. Um, There's good things from continental philosophy. I've mentioned a lot of continental philosophers already, but I really do find a lot of value that is often needed by the continental thinkers in the analytic tradition. So. Hmm. Those are, that's my long-winded answer to your question. No, that's really good. I mean, I think most listeners to this show are going to be familiar with, you know, your discussion about pre-understandings and so forth, because we've talked a lot about that. We're currently going through a series on Romans, and um, and 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 one thing I've I've written about in Rome in my Romans book, and I talk a lot about is Paul's own pre-understandings and the way he reads the Old Testament. Um, and so I think I think Paul would get along with what you're saying in, in a number of respects to um, at least the, at least the core of it all. Um, yeah, so so I, th- I definitely think that modern evangelicals need to probably think very deeply about this whole concept of pre-understandings uh, or what Gadamer would call, you know, pre-judgments or prejudice. And uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's so much more to be said uh, because we have this idea as evangelicals. As it's just me and my Bible, that's sort of the idea. Just whatever God, you know, we have my our quiet time. We say that's what we grew up calling it, one on one with God and all that. And it kind of gives the impression that when it comes to hermeneutics and interpretation, that it well, all that matters is just me and Jesus. Mm-hmm. When in fact, that's not all that matters. I mean, if even if even if you grabbed your Bible, moved out into the desert, and just lived in a tent for the rest of your life, you're it's not just you and your Bible. I mean, it's you, your Bible, and the the translators who gave you that Bible, the text critics who gave you that Bible, and the rich tradition that passed on those texts and those copies of the text throughout the ages. And all of those involve interpretive choices. As you know, translation is interpretation. So it's never you and your Bible. It's you, your Bible, and a whole host of translators <laughs> through history. And so so I, I I think that we need to come back and and to steal words from Gautamer is to say rehabilitate the idea of the fact that there can be helpful prejudice and or prejudgments is a better word. I mean, obviously, there are some prejudices that are just by definition evil, but but prejudgments as themselves, uh, as itself, you know, it, it's it's just a thing. It's just a reality. We always read scripture from a standpoint, of well, an angle, in other words. Well, one part of the one of the most important aspects of the hermeneutic task is what Jaws referred to as the hermeneutics of reception or the, mm-hmm. the history of reception of the text. Yeah. Not you know, Gadamer talks about the history of effects and how mm-hmm. uh, or the effective history of text and interpretation. Well, Jaws talks about, you know, the 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 um history of reception. And that's really what historical theology is, is we are studying how the Bible has been received and how it's been interpreted over the ages. But Joust doesn't just say, okay, we need to take that and let that be all of it, right? Right, right. Just say, oh, just whatever's been received is the best way. Because Joust also talks a lot about, no, we still need to engage the text on their own. Because sometimes we need to have our own um, horizons of understanding interrupted. 
Sometimes, and even though we need to look at the reception, sometimes studying the reception of this text, we can we can take what's been received, but sometimes we need to have those horizons of expectations interrupted a little bit. And that's why it's still important that though mm-hmm. we study the reception of the text, we still engage the text mm-hmm. on their own terms, on their own sure. terms. Sure, so, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that's I think that's super helpful on that front. So, hey, let's talk about coherence and just theology and all of that, yeah. or how theology um, is about coherence. So, th- yeah, theology is all about coherence. And in a sense, theology aims to bring together, like, all the bits and all the pieces of of the biblical data, and it wants to take all the data and coherently organize it. That, that's theology. And, and I think th- perhaps this is why theology shouldn't be viewed as pulling someone away from the Bible. Because after all, theology in this sense assumes that the Bible to that the Bible is organizable. I mean, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. So now again, I'm speaking from my experience here. I'm not making an absolute claim. So biblical scholars don't don't hate me. Um, <laughs> still buy my book, and so I can keep a roof over my family. Said, but in my experience, theologians tend to be a little bit more engaged with the disciplines of philosophy, especially formal logic, than most biblical scholars do. In defense of biblical scholars, you ha- y'all have so much time you have to dedicate to keeping your Hebrew and your Greek and your Aramaic polished. If you're an, an Old Testament scholar, you're studying Ugaritic, you're studying Akkadian, you're studying so many things. I get it. Logic just isn't always at the forefront of what you can do. But also the theologians, it, it is more accessible to us. And, and we're not spending as much time as we should be studying Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and Ugaritic and Akkadian and Latin. Uh, but if we do believe, and as evangelicals we do, but as evangelicals, if we do believe that all 66 of the biblical books are God's very word to his covenant people, and if we believe that God is a perfect being who does not communicate or believe falsehoods, as the Bible itself does teach us, then his word must be coherent with itself. Now, this is where a healthy dose of canonical criticism, or as Brevard Childs like to call it, his canonical approach to biblical theology can be helpful for us. Yes, we believe that the Bible is a library of 66 books that were all written over the course of many centuries. But, you know, we also believe that the Bible as a whole functions as a single book and that it has this overarching story or worldview narrative, if you will, that is held in common by the various biblical authors, both Israel's prophets and uh, Jesus's apostles. And if we do believe this, then it is essential that biblical scholars be well-versed in philosophy, especially logic and and systematic theology, because these disciplines are going to help us pay more attention to the coherence, not just of our theology that derives from our exegesis, but to the theology of the Bible itself. Also, and and I think this is something that's pretty widely agreed upon by contemporary biblical theologians, it is best that we try to organize the data of Scripture by, by what appear to be Scripture's own organizing principles or anchors, if you mm. will. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Halstead here has a great discussion of various biblical anchors in an episode he did over on the Naked Bible podcast. You should go listen to that. It's great. Um, now, this is not to say that there is a single thing. I didn't pay, by the way, I didn't pay Andrew to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I will say, though, I... Yeah, you're right. I mean, I just want to make a quick comment here is that the the we do need to pay attention to those biblical anchors 
Um, in fact, that might be the word. Was that one of the words I used in, when I was? It's on... the word you used. I did. I okay. It sounds like yeah. episode while bowing my yard one day <laughs> and sweating oh, a lot because it's hot down here in New Orleans in the summer. <laughs> and I realized, like, yeah, I really like that word anchor. Um, yeah, now, it does. It does anchor the text and, and, and you're finding that narrative, the story. And that's mm-hmm. something N.T. Wright talks a, a lot about this, like a storied approach to scripture and anyway, mm-hmm. all that. I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt, but yeah. yeah and then uh, John Walton and Golden Gate, too. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. I want to be clear that this is not to say that there's like a single thematic motif or anchor that can provide coherence to just all the biblical texts in the canon. I think if there's one area that some evangelical biblical theologians have wasted too much time in, it's trying to find what is the central motif of the Old Testament, the central motif of the New Testament, or the central motif of the entire Bible. I'm just not convinced that there is a single motif that is the that provides the unity of the Bible. I think it's much more helpful to think of the Bible as, as Wright and Golden Gay and as Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen do as this overarching drama of scripture, of mm. maybe thematic like divisions of like different acts you would expect to see in like a theater drama, you know, like act one is God creates and act two is humanity sins and falls. And act three is that God initiates redemption with the call of Israel. And act four is God accomplishes redemption in the person of Jesus. And act five is the mission of the church. And act six is that God consummates his kingdom. So I think that can be a helpful way to think about it. And I think it's helpful to say, hey, there's not a single central motif to the old Bible, but there are central motifs, plural, that we can think of as like, hmm. maybe there's not a single center, central motif, but there are central motifs, like the central aspects of like a web, so to hmm. say, that hmm. hold the rest of the web together. Hmm. That's, um, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I, can, I can get on board so, with that. And so seeing that there are these central thematic motifs or anchors, plural, that they can help us do this, this can really help us unlock the overarching story that does unite the biblical canon. So while it's helpful to see maybe those six acts by Bartholomew and Goheen that, oh, this, 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 these six acts, this overarching story helps us unite the Bible. Yeah, I think that's right. But they only came up with those six acts because they see these are the various important biblical anchors and motifs that are in the text itself that are uniting the Old and the New Testaments. So I think that's um, one way we can try and find the coherence of the Bible. And I think biblical scholars have done a great job of that. And uh, systematic theologians, we care a lot about coherence, but sometimes we need to do a much better job of I don't want to say studying our Bibles, that sounds pejorative, but being aware of what's going on in contemporary biblical theology so that way we can see what's being done there and we can learn from biblical scholars and biblical theologians um, so that way we can adapt the content from them and work it, mold it, and shape it into something that's better and healthy for our systematic theology. But at the same time, biblical scholars will be good to learn all the important tools of logic and of coherence, uh, especially internal coherence, that can help them think more coherently about how they're interpreting the Bible, too. Sometimes biblical scholars can just get lost in the ancient Near Eastern context or in the first century context, and they tend to read so much of that they're not always thinking, but this has to make sense with itself. If we do think it is a united word of God, then it does need to make sense with itself somehow. It needs to cohere with itself because if you have something that's internally inconsistent, then just by definition, the totality of it cannot holistically be true. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think a lot of times, and I know this is true for me, it's probably true for a lot of people, but sometimes sometimes we, we can have like knee-jerk reactions to labels. Like we want to avoid labels because mm-hmm. labels or systems, they they can be paralyzing, right? And and I mean, I think that's clear, but and I think I think we should be suspicious of labels sometimes. But here's the thing, coherence is clearly a virtue and 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 we we need theology, we should admit a need for theology. So how do we how do we organize the biblical data into something coherent? And and you've kind of already answered that question, I suppose. But um, I, you know, when we think about coherence, we do we mean agreement, or can you have very variations within the data and still have coherence? Because it seems to me that you you don't need to have complete agreement or complete. Uh, you don't have to do with variations in order to have coherence. In other words, variations don't imply inconsistencies. Does that make sense? Yeah. So usually when philosophers, when we talk about coherence, we're talking about like, for a lack of a term, like the fit of of propositions. So like, for example, suppose I make the statement, you know, um, the grass is green. Suppose I make that statement, but then suppose later I say, um, well, no, no plant is colored. Well, now, even though I have not explicitly said grass is not green in the second statement, that is an entailed proposition. Grass is not green if grasses do not have, if if any plant doesn't have color. So when we talk about coherence, that's what we're talking about. There cannot be any kind of entailed or implicit contradiction. Yeah, contradictions, logical contradiction. Yes, or or contrariness. Like, for example, Paul, if we do think that Paul's theology is coherent with Peter's, not only will Paul's not contradict Peter's, it's not going to be to the contrary of Peter's. And, and that's not going to be contrary or contradicting to what Moses has taught or, or you know, the psalmist or the gospel writers, right? So sure. that's what we mean by coherence is that kind of logical fit. Gotcha. Um, so, but when we want to talk about um, how can we organize a book of names, something coherent, mm-hmm. yeah, important, yeah. Well, I, again, I think it's first that we need to, as best we can, to be aware of the theological pre-understandings that we are bringing to the Bible when we read it. Um, I know many logicians might be screaming that I'm bringing in continental philosophy to <laughs> insights, but I think this is what Hey, I'm okay with it, just for the record. record. <laughs> well, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that logic is a subsumed yeah. into hermeneutics. I'm not saying that, but when sure. we're thinking about how to organize the biblical data, I think we first need to be aware as much as possible of our theological pre-understandings. Mm-hmm. And, and also we need to be aware too, um, pre-understandings are not intrinsically negative as meaning in the enlightenment thought. Um, in fact, interpretation and understanding as Gadamer, Ricoeur, and some others have shown, it would be impossible without them. And we need that frame of reference from which to make sense of new phenomena we encounter including texts that we encounter. But we need to be aware of them so that we can at times be ready to suspend our theological pre-understandings in order to read Scripture with new eyes or perhaps in a new light. And I think that's really important because sometimes, perhaps even oftentimes, a high level of commitment to our theological pre-understandings or prejudgments can cause us to miss something that the original audiences of Scripture would have found to be very obvious. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we need to be learning Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek because as I'm reading my English Bible, I can sometimes just miss something. Like, for example, Paul might be using a similar word multiple times to kind of be connecting some things back in, in Philippians, for example. In English, I may not catch it. But if I'm working slow with the Greek text and I'm trans, I'm like, wait a second, Paul's using this Greek term here several times. Usually when an author does that, 
they're they're after something. They're wanting me to notice this, right? But again, when we're reading slowly and we're looking for those things, uh, if we're reading the Bible in light of our pre-understandings and we're not suspending them or being aware of them, we might miss. They might cause us to miss a, an important detail, repetition or something that's in the biblical text that the biblical authors want us to see. So we need to be willing at times to suspend our theology to really read Scripture anew or from a different vantage point to see what sort of coherence and explanatory power, explanatory power might arise from this new hermeneutical vantage point. Now, having said this, I want to really reiterate what I just said in the previous question. We we begin by trying to do this. Once we're aware of our pre-understandings, maybe we don't need to suspend them just yet, but we at least need to be aware, okay, I know that I am bringing the BFM 2000 to this text, or you being in England, I know I'm bringing the 39 articles with me to this text. If you're Presbyterian, I know I'm bringing the Westminster Confession with me to this text. Um, as Orthodox Christians, I know I'm bringing the Apostles and I see the Athanasian creeds with us to these texts. I know this, right? But once we're aware of that, I think then maybe we don't need to suspend them quite yet, but we really need to start paying attention and trying to discern from the text itself central themes or anchors to the Bible and its overarching story. And then we take these themes or anchors like promise or covenant, offspring, kingship, the kingdom of God, etc. And then we take these anchors and these themes and we try to help use these to help us make sense of scripture. And then we try to take those themes those, and we try to let those be our organizational motifs and we try to organize the theology from that. So then I think it's going to be helpful to bring our interpretations of Scripture into dialogue. Once we've done that, I think then we need to kind of take our interpretation of Scripture that we're getting from that and bring that into dialogue with the major historical voices in church history to see how our interpretations cohere with theirs. Like, So in other words, what I'm saying is we need to take our interpretation of Scripture in light of noticing these motifs, these anchors, what have you, and then we bring this into dialogue with what we have received in the reception history of the text to see how it's fitting with that, how it might diverge from that. And this is going to lead us to ask important self-critical questions. Are we organizing scripture in similar ways as the fathers before us did? If we're not, then why are we not? What is it that they may have seen in the scriptures that we didn't? What might we have seen in Scripture that they didn't because we're trying to go back and pay closer attention to the Scripture's own themes and anchors? Uh, now, typical of contemporary systematic theology is an organizational schema that actually does attempt to follow the major elements of the overarching biblical story. Uh, and I think these may, overarching elements are kind of like what I about the drama of, of Scripture earlier. We have God, creation, fall, redemption, which would include God's call of Israel and the incarnation, and eschatology. Now, the various theological loci that we find in a typical systematic theology, such as Millard Erickson's, uh, they're going to reflect this. We're going to have revelation, divine attributes, and the Trinity, which all tie back to the doctrine of God, creation, humanity, sin and the fall, person of Christ, work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, the church, and eschatology. These, these different loci, these are all kind of following those major narrative arcs of the Bible itself. So, again, kudos to some systematic theologians for trying to do that. Uh, it's a short one-volume uh, undergraduate-level systematic theology, but Christopher Morgan's Christian Theology that he's published with B&H Academic, I use it for my undergraduate students, it does a great job of trying to show how various doctrines of these loci fit into the overarching biblical story, which he breaks up into these similar narrative arcs. So 
I, I think this is one way that we can attempt to organize the biblical material coherently. Mm-hmm. And again, what we see is that the systematician can try and do that as Erickson and Morgan and, and Michael Horton and Michael Burt. Some of them do maybe a little differently, but they try they do try and organize their doctrines in systematic theology according to these overarching um, arcs of the biblical narrative. So that way they're still trying to let the Bible itself set out its own organizing schema. Hey friends, I wanted to take a brief pause to say thank you for listening to the podcast each week. I hope these episodes are a blessing to you and an encouragement to you. My goal is simple, to offer food for thought, to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of scripture, consider becoming a patron of the show. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it helps support the podcast. You can join for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode and other levels of support will get you access to other things as well. For example, you have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me where we come together and chat about all sorts of fun theological stuff. I also do monthly book giveaways as well. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash the Bible Unmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. Let's take the Trinity as a case study. I mean, if we look at all the biblical data, I mean, we see some interesting things that are said about Jesus. So on the one hand, we read how Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. That's in John chapter 14. And, and then there are instances where Jesus expresses ignorance about the timing of his return, such as in Matthew 24. But, but on the other hand, Jesus says other things like, I and the Father are one, John chapter 10. And, and other passages speak pretty clear about Jesus' divinity as well, right? So how can we take all these bits of data and organize them into something coherent? Like, how, how, what does a theologian do? Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so well, first off, theologians are going to differ on how they do choose to do this. So, we're, so we're talking about the Trinity. Um, really, what we're getting at with this is really it's as much Christology as the Trinity. But you can't really do the Trinity without Christology, right? Because there are all these doctrines are interlocking with one another, just like the biblical narrative does. So now, some are going to take an approach to this, to the Trinity and to Christology. They're going to take this kind of approach that was kind of popular with patristics and with medieval thinkers and the Reformation. And it's probably the dominant approach throughout the history of the church, but it's called a Christology from above. That's their approach. And now this tends to begin with a more articulate doctrine of the Trinity, uh, such as we find in the Nicene or Athanasian creeds. And then it's going to try and work its way down. So we start up here real high, right, with this worked out doctrine of the Trinity. And we're going to kind of work our way down uh, to interpreting the scripture, the scriptures about Jesus in light of that. So we have this doctrine of the Trinity from the Athanasian and the Nicene creeds. Well, then we're going to go back and interpret passages like the Father is greater than I in light of that creedal dogma. And then we're going to take passages like the ignor- Jesus' ignorance of his return or where he says, I am the Father. One, we're going to interpret those in light of that dogma. That's kind of like how a Christology from below, uh, from above works. And that's one way to kind of get at the, the Trinity. Uh, now, again, this kind of Christology from above, like I've said, it's kind of entailed of the Trinity. It usually comes from these seven ecumenical councils of the church and their creeds. Uh, now, the other major approach, and this is the one that I personally favor, uh, it's often referred to as a Christology from below. So rather than beginning with the Jesus of the creeds or the Trinity of the creeds and the ecumenical councils, 
I like to begin with the Jesus of history, or the historical Jesus, if you will, as attested to by the New Testament authors, and to examine his teachings and his actions in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, including his resurrection from the dead. And, and from there, I want to try and develop a theory or a theology, if you will, of his divinity. So I look at the historical Jesus, and I also try and develop a theology of his humanity. Uh, I try and look at these things, how these titles he wore, like Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, Kyrios. I look at these titles Jesus is wearing. He's allowing people to call him. And I try and then build a theology out of that. Um, now, at this point, this approach typically, typically will kind of move or look something like this. Okay, okay. So Jesus is divine, and he is seen to be divine in these ways as pre presented in the Old Testament. Like, for example, um, what Paul talks about, the gospel authors talk about. But the Old Testament and the first century Jewish world were emphatic monotheists, and monolatry was essential to the right worship of Yahweh, who is the one true God, the God of Israel in the Old Testament, right? And we know this is the case with first century Judaism. We know that these Jewish people are thinking this way. But Jesus now is also God. Somehow or another, he is some, he's participating in this divine identity of Yahweh himself, as Richard Bauckham would say. And we also have this other guy that, that Luke and Paul are very emphatic about. Uh, they call him the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus calls him the Holy Spirit. So again, we've got these three persons that they're talking about in these divine terms. They're identifying, they're, and they're not just identifying them, they're worshiping them. Yes, they worship the one whom Jesus calls Father, but we also see in the New Testament they're worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping the Holy Spirit. But the Old Testament's very clear in the Shema. Hearken, O Israel, Yahweh is your God, Yahweh alone. There are no other gods before me. There's this explicit forbiddenness of, of idolatry, right? But somehow these Jewish Christians, these Jewish people who are convinced that Jesus is Yahweh's Messiah, they're not just convinced he's the Messiah. They're convinced that they should worship him and the one Jesus calls Father and this person that Jesus and the Father send to them, the Holy Spirit. So how do we make sense of these three persons being truly divine? And also with this idea, this monolatrous claim that uh, there's only one God and his name is Yahweh. Now, at this point, the systematician in dialogue with historical theology and philosophy will attempt to develop some sort of model of the Trinity to make sense of this uh, or some other model of God to make sense of these different phenomenon. Um, examples of this might be what's called classical or Latin Trinitarianism. There's social Trinitarians who are trying to do this. There's relative identity Trinitarians, material constitutional Trinitarians, etc. There's all kinds of Trinitarians, right? But that's what systematicians do. They take this data and then they this biblical data. They're like, okay, well, let me get all my, my tools from sentential logic, predicate logic, modal logic, counterfactual logic, probability, all the logics, right? Let me get these together. And let me see and see what the best that we know from metaphysics that philosophers study. And let's see if we can work out. Because the Bible, while it affirms that these three persons are divine, and while it affirms that there is only one God, it doesn't give us more than that. Pretty much the Bible says there is exactly one God, and there are precisely three persons properly called God. That's really all the Bible gives. It doesn't tell us how to work it out. Um, the systematician is going to take that, it's going to look how the church has tried to work it out, and then it's going to look at the best tools from contemporary philosophy and metaphysics and say, okay, how can we develop a coherent model to make sense of all of this? So that way we as worshipers today can have a clear understanding of who this one God who is three persons is and how we ought to relate to him and properly worship him. And again, 
as you've rightly highlighted, we're going to stress coherence in this. The model we, de we developed to make sense of this has to be coherent. And the reason for this is that though coherence may not by itself be a sufficient condition for statements about God and the Trinity to be true, it is a necessary one. Coherence is necessary, but not sufficient. But again, it is necessary. So we got to so, have that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You've mentioned logic. So so reason plays a role definitely in all this. What What is the role of reason in crafting theology? Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Now, so I, I am very emphatic about the importance of reason. Like if scripture is our ultimate authority, I personally am going to put reason beneath that. Now, again, when I mean reason, I don't mean a particular philosophical system. I am just simply referring to the laws of logic the rule and the rules of formal logic. And this includes, but they're not limited to sentential logic, predicate logic, modal logic, counterfactual logic, probability theory. Logic just are just is the laws of truth. It's all the things. Now, logic does not make something true, but logic is going to preserve what is true. In other words, what logic is going to do is it's going to teach us proper ways of thinking and reasoning. So that way, if we begin, if we begin with truth, follow the laws and rules of formal logic, we will end with truth. If we begin with truth, we'll always end with truth. Now, we're going to use these tools, and what I mean reason, we use these tools how to determine whether or not the distinct features of our theology are coherent or not. So when I say reason, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a particular metaphysic, a particular epistemology, a particular ethical theory or aesthetic. I'm not talking about those things. I'm not even talking about a particular hermeneutic per se. Just the bare minimum, the laws and rules of formal logic. Now, and the reason this is important is because theologians, they don't just like to try and say true things about God. They want to say powerful things about God. Like, you know, you, you'll read Robert theologians like Robert Jensen, who will say these incredibly powerful and beautiful sounding pious statements about the triune God. But just because something may sound nice and pious doesn't make it true and it doesn't make it coherent. Like some people like to say, well, in a sense, God doesn't even exist at all because God is just beyond being and only being exists. Well, if God is beyond being, then we can't even properly say God exists. I just think that kind of stuff is nonsense. That sounds great and pious that, yes, God is beyond being, but it doesn't really make any sense. It's not coherent to say those kinds of things. Um, coherence, as I said earlier, it is a necessary condition for a statement to be true. It's necessary. It's not sufficient. Uh, in order for it to be sufficient, we need it to correspond to reality, the fact of the matter, the way the world really is. But it is a necessary condition. And when we say it must be coherent, it, what we mean is that it has to be coherent with every other true statement there is. Because in the same way that the universe and that reality is a unified reality, and since coherence is something that maps on about to statements about reality, if reality is united, then any true statement about reality is likewise going to be united, which is why we got to have coherence. Now, again, coherence alone isn't sufficient to make a statement true, but it is necessary. So reason is going to help us do this, do this task of theology, and it's essential for the task of theology. Um, when we go back and we read the theologians of the past, even in the Old and New Testaments, we should, uh, they're always trying to be coherent. I mean, not, Moses never would have thought God contradicted himself. And they never would have said the law contradicts itself. The Torah, no Jew is going to say the Torah is self-contradictory. They're not going to do that. No Orthodox Jew, at least. None of the apostles thought that Jesus contradicted himself in his teachings. 
And never you never see Paul or Peter saying, "Well, Jesus was close, but he was, but he, but he really just was a little incoherent here." They don't ever do that. They always presume it's coherent. Paul is a very coherent thinker. Now, the, another reason that I stress importance and reason, one of the reasons why I want to elevate reason slightly higher than the church's tradition, is because as we go back and study the the church thinkers, the the church's thinkers of the past and these historical theologians, we go back and read these theologians. We should be reading them to determine whether or not their theological moorings were coherent or not, because sometimes we have this tendency to just accept whatever whatever Thomas Aquinas says or whatever John Calvin says or whatever Jacob Arminius says or Louis de Molina or Augustine or whoever, whoever our favorite dead guys are. We have this bad habit out of almost a kind of weird reverence for them to just take wholesale what they said and just accept it. Well, if Augustine said it, it must be true because he's really smart. He is really smart. And we probably should give an edge of grace to him if we're having a hard time understanding. But if Augustine says something that's downright incoherent, then we shouldn't believe it. If Molina says something that's incoherent, we shouldn't believe it. Arminius, Calvin, Aquinas, whoever, N.T. Wright, whoever says, if anyone ever says something that's downright incoherent, we should not believe it. We, we, we just shouldn't, because if it's incoherent, then by definition, it cannot be true. Um, because if these thinkers and their theological statements aren't coherent, then we know at least one item in their system is false. And once we start tinkering with the beliefs of a system, especially if they're central beliefs to a particular system, we're going to have to start tweaking and or reorganizing our net or web of belief of all of these other doctrines. Um, if you want to, or if you want to take a, a different metaphor and think of it like a Jenga tower, if you move too many of the Jenga blocks at the bottom of the tower out, you get your risk more of your tower of belief falling than if you just make the ones closer to the top fall out. So this is why reason is going to serve both as a normative and regulative role in our uh, theological systems building. Again, that's a, a long-winded answer, but that's uh, yeah, that's what I think about that. No, I definitely think that reason is important. I mean, you can't, I mean, you can't, it, it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, you could have, a theology that is incoherent. I mean, that that just makes zero sense. So some people will talk about the differences between propositional and narrative logics. Yeah. That's yeah. such an overblown dichotomy. It infuriates me when I hear people want to say, well, the biblical authors aren't concerned with propositional coherence, just narrative coherence, just narrative logic. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> the laws of sure. logic like the laws of mathematics. They are universal. There's no possible world where two plus two is anything before. There is no possible world where we have married bachelors. Mm -hmm. There's no possible world where the statements God exists, God does not exist, are coherent with one another. And, and, and this doesn't do away with mystery, right? I mean, no, it doesn't. Yeah, or paradox, I guess you could say. Like This is this is why I err on the more conservative side of model building. Like, for example, when we think about the Trinity, I tend to favor social models of the Trinity. I'm not saying that this is the model, because even within social Trinity, you have various arguments about which model is right. I, I tend to take a more conservative approach. While I tend to lean that way, my hope isn't in the model, right? I don't rely on the model. Like, for example, if the social model fails... Okay, well, I got a classical model. I got a relative identity model. I got a material constitution. Like I've got other options. So again, what I when I think what's important for theologians to talk to think about, and this I get from hermeneutics, is our limitedness as finite thinkers and as fallen thinkers to realize that though the laws of logic are somewhat infallible, um, our use of those laws is not. 
kind of like how the scriptures are infallible, but our interpretations are not. Same with the laws of logic. Just because we know the laws of logic doesn't mean we always use them properly. That's why we always disagree with one another. So I like to, to think of it as like, okay, hey, we're not going to know exactly how God is triune. We're not going to know that exactly. But when we see like non-believers or atheists or skeptics say, well, the Trinity is just incoherent, these models serve to say, well, here's one plausible story to make sense of God. Oh, well, if that doesn't work, here's another plausible story. Here's another plausible story. Like it's about showing the plausibility of it, and they give us ways to make sense. If it turns out social Trinitarianism is false, eh, so much the worse. Okay, I've, got, I've still got a classical view of the Trinity. I've still got, I've got other tools. If my particular view of the incarnation turns out not to be the right one, eh, my worldview doesn't change. Okay, I just go to the next model on offer. Because again, these are ways to make sense of scripture. They're not making scripture true, but there are ways for it to say So I take a little more, uh, I don't want to call it humble because that sounds arrogant just to say that, but I take a little more conservative approach to, to model building. So again, like when I would say my model of Trinity that I'm working on with Joshua Ferris in a paper, I'm like, we're probably we're not, neither of us are saying this is the right model of the Trinity. We're just saying, hey, this is a, here's a here's another story we could tell that does make sense of the biblical data. This could work. You're 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 after possibility, and if it's something is possible, then it's not. I would even uh, say logical. Yeah, I even say we're after plausibility. Sure, like not, no one step one way, It's like yeah, this is a, here's a plausible story. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even gonna say. I might, I might say sometimes like yeah, this model of Trinity is probably true, but yeah. again, if it's not. My worldview, my biblical worldview, is not going to shift. My view of the Bible is not going to shift. Yeah, and and, so, and by, again, by reason, you're you're incorporating reason into a theological method is is just to say, no contradictions allowed, <laughs> right? No contradictions and no contrary statements. Allowed. Any contrariness? Yeah, that you mentioned that earlier yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, we're we're going to rule both of those out. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, um, you know, even critiquing tradition. Um, so so I'm Anglican. I used to be Baptist. You know, you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, you know, you and I would probably have some differences on a few things, obviously. Um, sure, we do, <laughs> <laughs> sure, based sure. on our conversations, I'm pretty sure we do. Uh, you know what? We, we, you can still be my friend though. So, <laughs> oh, no, yeah. uh, you course. definitely, yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, this is why I think this is, this is a good, uh, discussion because I just want to hear from you on, on these thoughts. I mean, I know what my own thoughts are, but that's boring if all I have is the echo chamber. Um. So yeah, I want to hear your thoughts. Um, what in your mind is the role of tradition in forming theology? I mean, you you mentioned we could critique tradition, and 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 you know, in Anglicanism and tradition is important. Um, you know, the the creeds are said in every service and and whatnot. Um, but but you know, but Anglicanism is is the middle way, right? It's the middle way between, um, you know, the Roman Catholic tradition and uh, protestantism in a sense right fun fact um, reformed and catholic right that's the mantra right? fun fact i think yeah. everyone here is crammer but the, the anglican theologian who's talking about it be calling it the via media they yeah. actually calling it a middle way between the catholic church and the reformed church it was a middle way between sure. the reformed church and the lutheran church oh yeah 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 i got you, I got you. Fact, yeah yeah that's so fun. I, I i recently learned that from a from an anglican theologian friend of mine sure so. sure sure well, there's there's a sense of in in which of, you know, being able to critique tradition and yet allow it to be, um, uh, still still allow still recognizing it and allowing it and part of the referring to it part of definitely definitely part of the discussion, 
And um, so, yeah, the, this, but this idea of the middle way, the, the, the via media, the, you know, that's where sort of my, my, my bread is buttered for sure. But I want to hear from you, like what, what in your mind is the role of tradition in forming theology? Yeah. Well, as we've kind of hinted at, it's going to depend on who you ask, right? Sure. Now, by God's good, glorious, and blessed grace, I am a Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> and my answer to this, I, I am a Baptist with a lot of Anglican sympathies. I, For those sure. of you listening, um, the Book of Common Prayer has just been transformative for my prayer life. I I pray the Nicene Creed. I I recite the Apostles' Creed with the daily office. I pray the daily office on a regular basis. I'm still Baptist, but I find lots of benefit in the symbolism and the rich meaning of the Anglican traditions. And I love Anglican liturgy. So sure. Matt and I have actually more common than we do differences. And and we we do worship the same Lord. Um, but I am Baptist. And so my answer to this question about tradition is going to be actually very different than what an Anglican is going to say, a Roman Catholic, an Eastern Orthodox, a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, or even a Methodist. And because I'm Baptist, it's going to be very different from what other Baptists are going to say, right? For example, we've got some really sharp uh, Baptist theologians like Matt Emerson and Luke Stamps and Brandon Smith, who are working with the Center for Baptist Renewal, who are very big on Baptists being engaged with the great tradition and, and learning a lot from the great tradition and letting the great tradition informs a lot of our theology, being creedal, being they're really pushed for that. Now, these other, and I, and I think there's merit to that. I'm not going to be, while I have a respect for the tradition, and I always want tradition to be part of the conversations with the Bible I'm having, I'm not going to be quite as persuaded by some of the things in the tradition that they are. Now, these other more confessional Christian traditions that I mentioned earlier, like Anglicanism, Catholicism, Lutheranism, etc., they tend to place a higher level of authority, like dogmatic authority, on the church's tradition. And, and again, by the tradition, in particular, I just wanted to kind of keep it minimalist, the seven ecumenical councils and the ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. So I'm just going to keep it kind of middle. I'll, I'll, I'll play the Anglican game here. But even in these traditions, they're going to see this ecumenical church tradition and they're going to they often going to treat it what they call a norma normata to scriptures being the norma normans but when we mean by that when we say that scripture is our norma normans it is the norming norm for our theology it's it's where the buck stops it has the final say over everything pertaining to spiritual religious and theological life right that's what we mean by that when we, and when theologians want to talk about uh, the tradition being the norma normata, they mean the norm that is norm. So if scripture is the number one authority, like the tradition is going to be like the number two authority for them. And then usually something like reason will come beneath that and then experience if you're a Wesleyan. Now, many of these traditions will say things like the church's tradition holds a higher authority than individual reason. And by that, I think they mean reason as exercised by an individual. Some people will use that term individual reason and the analytic philosopher in me is just like, what do you mean by that? Give me a definition. We're in the necessary and sufficient conditions for being an individual reasoner, right? Um, but I actually find this claim, either even if they just mean an individual use of reason, I find this actually to be quite problematic. Uh, first off, the only reason that someone would actually elevate the tradition to this level of dogmatic authority is because it seems reasonable to them to do so. In order to give the tradition a place a higher level than reason their dogmatic authority they have to do they have to use reason to do that so i think this is already just kind of a, a self-defeating position 
Uh, also, I'm not sure why we should think that the church over the course of 2000 years has always gotten everything right. Maybe they even got some details or features about the fundamentals wrong. I don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But it just seems to me that if the church is forever and always constituted by fallible individuals, then there's never going to be anything intrinsic to them, uh, or not at least necessarily speaking, that makes their statements more authoritative than yours or even mine. Um, some would say that it's the consensus of the tradition that grants the level of authority as well. But I think that's false, too, and that's really just another version of the fallacy that we call ad populum. It's an appeal to the populace. It's just a theological populace. Um, while, yes, consensus plays an important role in all scientific theorizing, we see consensus playing a role, that doesn't stop, like, for example, say the consensus is that, you know, the traditional Big Bang singularity view of the origins of the universe is the consensus view. Well, that still doesn't stop there from being string theorists or quantum loop gravity theorists or something like that. They can still say, hey, I still think my view has more data and more reasons supporting it, right? So consensus doesn't make something true. It might give us reasons for siding with it in the absence of more evidence, but it does not make it true. Um, for example, the vast majority of the, I'll even say the intelligent world, the vast majority, at one point they thought the world was flat. That didn't make that belief any less false. Or look at the incident with uh, Galileo and the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, Galileo was excommunicated for teaching that the sun was the center of the solar system. Now, I know like, like you and I have talked about, some, some think that there's more going on there, like political issues and stuff like that. It's not simply this. But the alleged reason was for his saying the sun was at the center of the universe. Clearly, I think this was considered by the Roman Catholic Church at the time to be an important dogma, not just a doctrine, because you don't excommunicate someone over a belief that's not consequential. Um, and so I, I think that, but here's the thing, we now know that the church and the tradition at that time were wrong on that particular point. Also, if God's going to be willing to permit the church to be wrong on issues such as the Galileo incident, not to mention, I think, if God's going to allow the church to perform and perpetuate the kind of evils we saw in the Crusades or the Renaissance papacy. And again, I'm not just trying to, like, dump on the Catholic Church. I'm not doing that at all. I'm, think, I'm thinking of Christians universally in this case. If they're going to let, if, they're, if God's going to allow, for example, um, mid-20th century Baptists perform acts of racism to the extent that they did, I then then why would I think that God would allow us to to do those His church in the name of Jesus do those things? Why would God allow people in the name of Jesus and the authority of Scripture to say, you know, African Americans lack the image of God? But He's going to why would He allow that? But He's not going to let us get the Trinity wrong. He's not going to let us get the incarnation wrong. There's just something about that that seems inconsistent to me. I, I can't really make too much sense of that. So though I really do think studying their tradition or the traditions and historical theology are very valuable, and I would say they're even essential for theology, um, I'm hesitant to give them that much authority. Studying the tradition and the councils and stuff, this really does help us know which paths have been traversed before us uh, when reading the Bible and how we can avoid some of those pitfalls. But studying historical theology and the traditions can also help us see the mistakes that the church has made, not just heretics, but that the church herself has made in the past, and that we still need to recover from some of those mistakes. So though I think that the tradition is helpful in doing theology, I don't rank it as 
as authoritative as scripture or even reason for that matter. Because again, first of all, I think to say that tradition has authority over reason. Well, you only arrived at that conclusion because of reason. So it seems that even though you're saying tradition has more authority, functionally, you're giving reason the higher thing. And also, if even your most com person committed to the tradition, if the tr if the tradition ever came out and said that squares or squares and circles can be the same shape, no one's going to believe them on that because reason is going to say that can't be true, right? So. Uh, so if I had to give a ranking, I would say my my ranking is scripture and reason, and then um, and then uh, tradition. Now again, oftentimes when I am thinking through a particular theological difficulty for that seems to arise from the Bible, and I look at the tradition, and I might say, well, I'm not really satisfied with how the tradition handled this, but I'm also not convinced that I can come up with a better answer to it. So I'll go with tradition until some more evidence arises. But on one, there's cases where I think reason gives us good reasons or evidences to to go against the tradition. I'm and I and I look around, I see that there are others in the in the fields of biblical studies, of theology, of philosophers who were who are seeing the same tensions and going that way. And if the arguments uh, in favor of what seems to be the problem with the tradition seem more compelling than I'm going to, to go that direction. And I think that's, and I'm not doing that because I'm a Baptist. I'm a Baptist because this is more of my instinct to do this. So that's that's kind of the role I think tradition has. Tradition does have a role. And I think that we should always punt to tradition in the lack of better evidence or reasons for going against it. And again, um, I think I try to model this pretty well, just even in my classes, like in my Sunday school class, I tell my my class, hey, go read Augustine, go read Irenaeus, go read Athanasius, the Cappadocians. I tell them uh, in my undergraduate classes, I try to find ways to fit the sources from our patristic fathers into their syllabi for they're required to read these, even though they might have some conclusions I might differ with. Uh, but again, so go with tradition until you're given good reasons not to. But once we say that there are good reasons not to, we have already, in, you know, implicitly elevated reason above the tradition. Yeah, I, I just think as, you, as you're talking, I, I have probably a million things I want, I want to ask, uh, specifically <laughs> about scripture and tradition and, and well, reason too, I suppose. But um, because you know, we employ reason to establish scripture. I, I, I guess I could just imagine somebody objecting and saying, yeah, but don't you use reason to establish scripture as God's word, right? Or is it, do we just, you know, and so would that elevate reason above scripture or are they more like partners? And they, does that, you know, anyway, yeah, I, yeah. there's a million so other would, things. I, I No, no I that, think that's a really great question because I, I ask that question a lot. I sure, sure. Yeah. So I would say that what really happens with scripture, it's not quite the same because first off, no one has yet to to show where there is an explicit contradiction in scripture or any kind of incoherence. Any kind of con alleged contradiction or contrary teaching. Yes, I mean, guess what? There are there are plausible explanations for why they're not contradictions, and they're not far fetched. They're they're even on the basis of the context, the grammatical and historical context of the scriptures themselves, mm -hmm. as to how to explain those tensions. Mm -hmm. um right so, but, okay, having said, but having said that i would say that uh what's really going on is reason is not establishing scripture reason is recognizing the authority of scripture okay 
and and even tradition like when we say scripture i'm just i'm just trying to to think of objections here what somebody might say is if you have scripture as the highest authority i mean i, I suppose somebody could say yeah but you know, there's no scripture apart from interpreting scripture, and there's no interpreting scripture apart from one's tradition. And you, you get that. You get that. Yeah, yeah. Idea. So what would you say to that? I would say if I wrote a letter, suppose I was on a on a ship and the ship wrecked and it was going down, and before the ship went down, I wrote a letter to to Katie and hoped that one day it made it to her, and I put it in the bottom through it in the ocean. And suppose a shark eats the bottle; she never gets the letter. That letter still meant something. It still had meaning in that text, even if it was never read. So when people say there's no meaning without interpretation, I just think that's false. Um, if they mean there's no significance in it, maybe. Um, but clearly, if by me, but again, it depends on what one, someone wants to mean by that word meaning, right? What is the meaning of meaning, right? So if we're talking about that, well, we, we use that word in different ways, and sometimes we equivocate on it. It's like, for example, if you said to me, yo, yo, Andrew, you got to kick a cocker spaniel and pet a purple mouse. I'm going to be like, hey, Matt, what do you mean by that? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I think I think meaning like, for the for the per, for the person reading and interpreting, because I mean, the, like in your example, yeah, it would have meaning for Katie, but it would have meaning for you because you've read it. You know what I mean? That's significance you're talking about. The text itself means something, even if no one reads it. The text is encoded with meaning, even if no one's decoding it. Yeah, this is going to take us way too far afield here. <laughs> I, have okay, a, okay. I have a million no, things no, I want to say about that. No, because this, this question came up in my Sunday school class recently. Sure, meaning and significance. This is a, a Gadamer. Well, I think significance first, is part yeah. of, I think this is part of, yeah. significance is part of meaning. And I, and I get that from Pannenberg, actually. So like think of, let's think about this. Let's let's chase this rabbit for a second because I think it's a good rabbit. What do Christians do with the book of Leviticus? Right? That was a question in my Sunday school class. We're talking about that. What do Christians do with that? And because clearly it meant something for ancient Israel that it doesn't seem to mean for us today. And I'm like, ah, well, it was significant for ancient Israel in a way that's not significant for us today. It's significant for us today, but in a different way. Now, now whether you're part of the church today or whether you are part of eighth century Israel, the words of Moses mean what Moses intended them to mean. That never changes. Moses is what Moses encoded in that text never changes. Now, the context of the reader or the reading community, that changes. So the significance takes on new meaning. So for believers, so for Christians, we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God told Moses, right? We believe that he's not just the means by which we're made righteous. We believe that Jesus is the means by which he makes us holy and sanctifies us, that God has made us holy. He has sanctified us. So much more goes. So as a result of that, um, we don't we don't need the Levitical sacrificial system anymore because of this, because Jesus being the high priest, being the sacrifice itself, both for the scapegoat offering, the the uh, the sanctifying offering of the uh, of Israel's sin, being the Passover lamb, because of things, and by his being the temple itself, he's full, he is he has fulfilled. He has been the pleroo the Greek for this. He has fulfilled it. He has filled it to the brim, completed it. He is those things for us. So we do not need these anymore. Now, for those of us who don't need that anymore, does the, does the Book of Leviticus still have meaning for us? Well, yes, we still need to read and interpret Moses's words for what he was trying to tell us. And what is he trying to tell us in Leviticus? God is God's holiness is to this extent. Here's what you have to do for his presence to remain with you in the camp. 
in the midst of you. Now, as New Testament believers, we believe this has been accomplished with what Jesus has done for us. Now, what Moses, is int- what Moses intended is the same. But because our context has changed, the significance that has for us has changed. This tells us, well, if it took all of that, because God's holiness was to such an extent, it took all of that for him to remain in the camp of his people. And Jesus is able to satisfy that in a once-for-all way for us. Then how holy and set apart is Jesus? And also we have to remember that in light of that, even though Jesus has made us holy, it doesn't stop Paul and Peter from telling us, be holy as the Lord your God is holy, and to continue to be a holy set-apart nation of priests to the world. So the book of Leviticus has a different significance for us, but what Moses encoded in it has not changed at all. Uh, so that's that's a way we can talk about that. Um, would Gautamer agree with you? <laughs> I I hope he would. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I think I think he would. Mm. I do. I think Gautamer. You know, Gautamer. He's he's interesting. He he. If you want to talk about a via a via media, he he is it. Mm. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is not because he is not giving the what determines the meaning of a text. He's not giving that to the readers, but he also wants to allow the text to mean more. Now, here's the thing: I don't think Gadamer would deny, at least with what he says in Truth and Method, he's not going to deny that reader that authors have some sort of control factor over their meaning. Like, for example, right, right. I agree with that. Paul, yeah. Like, for example, if Paul says God is good, the tradition is never going to be legitimized in saying God is not good, right? Clearly, Paul didn't mean it. Like the tradition, we're going to be able to say, "Well, Paul, well, Paul said uses the words God is good, but he means God is not good." Yeah, that's not going to work. Gadamer's not going to let that happen mm-hmm. because readers just don't get to control that. There is some kind of regulative principle that the author of the text has. But yeah, Gadamer, the, the text has its own horizon of understanding, right? right? That right. And it cannot be muted. It cannot be silenced for Gadamer. Now, this is where I think Ricoeur might be a little more helpful because I think Ricoeur wants to give a little more. Not as much. He's still going to give a place for readers, but Ricoeur is going to I think going to give a little more edge because he's going to talk about the speech act aspect of of text as discourse. He's going to give a little more to speakers and authors than I think Gadamer might. So I feel like we need to have another episode just about this <laughs> topic: tradition, reason, scripture, and meaning. And I have a million things I want to say, but I have I have other questions <laughs> I want to get yeah, to though. But no, no, no. Yeah, I appreciate your thoughts. I, I really do. I think. I, Some I think, rabbits are worth chasing. Oh, they are. They're definitely worth chasing. And this this is a good rabbit to chase. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Anyway, let's let's just, let's shelve some of this for okay. later because I have a million things, a million thoughts. And if I'm not careful, we'll chase a lot of rabbits out of state and we'll I get lost. It. So, so um, but, but it sounds like um Sounds like you like tradition. I mean, you're not like anti-tradition by no means. So, what would what would what would you say to Christians who have an allergy of sorts against the use of reason and tradition? Honestly, these are my thoughts. Get over it. <laughs> um, <laughs> here's the thing: you're using reason and tradition anyway, so mm. you might as well learn how to use them well and properly. And you can never not use them. It's just not possible. You're always going to be reading scripture in light of some tradition. You're mm. always going to be making sense of scripture using reason. You're always going to be ranking your authorities using reason and scripture. You're already doing it. Just get over it and learn how to do it well. Yeah. And uh, yeah. maybe that seems harsh. Uh, well, I think it hits and on I've something been, that's true. I, just, I, mean... I just, I'm just getting tired of some people saying, 
Well, yeah, we shouldn't use reason tradition, just scripture only. That's what Luther was. Yeah, well, you, Luther used a lot of script, a lot of reason and philosophy. He was more influenced by Occam than he wants to acknowledge. So when we read Tertullian, what hath you know Athens to do with Jerusalem? Well, Tertullian yeah. used a lot of philosophy to make sense of scripture to articulate a doctrine of the Trinity. So to the Tertullianites, and I love Tertullian, he's great. Sure. It's all the Tertullianites. Get over it. I love you, but get over it. <laughs> It, it really, it, you do hit on a good point here. And I think that, I mean, it's like, well, you can't, as I was saying earlier, you can't get away from tradition. You can't get away from your tradition. You're, you are embedded in a tradition. You are, uh, well, Gadamer, we're talking about Gadamer a lot. Gadamer, one of Gadamer's famous quotes was, um, history does not belong to us. We belong to it. And so we, that's his way of saying we are thrown tossed into embedded within a culture tradition that has shaping power over us and you know you know there are traditions that uh that hate tradition right i mean Mm -hmm. that's a tradition so so there so we so i think you do hit on a good point um here but uh, let's Adamer does go one place that i'm not willing to follow him and that's where he wants to say that even reason itself is conditioned by history and that's and it depend now depending on what he means by that word reason, which is funny. I can't. What's funny is that even he cannot escape the importance of what he means by the word reason for what his readers are going to get from it. Um, because if by reason he just means the laws of logic, like what I do, those aren't conditioned by history. We might have discovered them in history, but there's also no possible world where modus ponens is not a valid argument. So. So some, so like I so said, the laws of reason, they're, they're universal. They're not conditioned by history. The importance we assign them in our thinking might be conditioned by history. But, I mean, that's like saying, you know, the, the, the rules and laws of mathematics are, are shaped by history. That's just not true. They transcend history, regardless of your culture or place in history. Two plus two is four. He also says that, you know, when he's talking about the rehabilitation of tradition, and in that section, he he says something about, you know, sometimes it's reasonable to appeal to authority, to appeal to a tradition. Oh, absolutely. You yeah. Know? I mean, I, he does say and that. That's, and that's yeah. what I and that's where I follow him is like sure, in the sure. absence of better reasons or evidence, go with what the church tradition has said about scripture. And I think that's a respectable position for sure. Yeah. But okay. We, um but we do have good reasons and evidence sometimes to not go with them. Yeah. Again, we we really need to have a whole episode on this. (laughs) (laughs) My wheels are spinning here, but um, I'm showing guys. I'm showing considerable restraint not to chase that rabbit there and this rabbit here and that rabbit way over there. So I can usually can usually never have a. They're good conversations on the phone, but we've never had a successful conversation on the phone because one of us will chase a rabbit <laughs> until that rabbit has died of an asthma attack. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a that's a pretty good way to put it. I think yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, okay. So, so, okay. Let's just suppose, you know, this is sort of an elephant in the room, I suppose, as we're talking about all these things, but just because someone has a high view of scripture, just because someone also employs reason and rightly considers the great tradition, that doesn't guarantee that everyone will agree. I mean, I mean, Christians disagree all the time. Why do you think that is? Why do, why do Christians disagree all the time, even if they've got all of their marbles in the same same place? Right, right, right. Yeah, well, even though Scripture is infallible, and, and yes, I'm going to say this, the laws of logic are infallible. And just by that, I mean, there's no possible world wherein modus ponens or the laws of logic are are false or invalid arguments. They, they obtain in every possible world. Though Scripture is infallible and the laws of logic are even, poss- are even infallible, 
our interpretations of scripture and our uses of, of reason are not infallible. Mm, we, are, we are, we all approach the task of hermeneutics and of reasoning from a horizon of understanding as Gadamer would say, and those horizons are like us fallible and fallen. We often see the world very differently from one another because of our experiences in the world. Uh, someone who lost a loved one who is far too young for it to have been their time. They may not see the rational principles of justice at work in the universe as you do or as I do. Um, and I say, no, there's there's no good reason for why this child should have died in this way. There's no good reason. The universe clearly is just a chaotic place. There are no rules of reason governing the universe. Uh, they might they might see that. They may not see the universe like you and I do. Now, well, and, a, and, and, and we see this, at least, and, and by the way, for those listening who like literature, if you want a great example of this, just think to... Ivan um, Karamazov's examples to Alexei Karamazov and the brothers Karamazov in uh, not only in the Great Inquisitor chapter, but also in the chapter preceding that. Um, also, hmm. that's another takeaway from this in, from this discussion. Read Dostoevsky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what you're saying is like sometimes we. And this is true of me and everybody I know. When you see injustice, when you see heartbreak and pain, you may not understand. You you might employ your reason, but you, for whatever reason, you don't quite get the full picture. And so, what you're saying is, even though we have access to logic and reasoning ability, doesn't mean that our reasoning ability isn't, at the end of the day, creaturely. We are finite in our understanding. Right. So there's yeah. So even though I've studied logic, I've even taught logic at graduate levels. But there are sometimes, like, say, I'm in a a debate with my wife, Katie, who always wins because she's smarter than me. <laughs> um, but suppose just because I'm getting frustrated, I'm just not thinking. And I, I deny the antecedent in an argument, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, if A then B, not A, therefore B, well, that's an invalid argument. I have broken one of the rules of logic, which is don't think this way because if we deny the antecedent, it's foul. It's fallible. It's, it's, we can make a mistake. It's not foolproof. We can, it's an invalid way of thinking. You know, like, for example, if we say, uh, um, if Matt is an Anglican, therefore Matt is a Christian, Matt is not an Anglican, therefore Matt is not a Christian. Well, that's obviously that conclusion is not true. He could be a Methodist and be a Christian. He could be a Baptist. Uh, so sometimes, again, though I have reason, I know the rules of logic, I don't always use them right. Or sometimes yeah. I might think a particular argument form works, but I've forgotten, oh, wait, this is counterfactual logic. This is counterfactual reasoning. Modus ponens doesn't work quite the same in counterfactual logic that it does in sentential logic. It works. There's a different way it works. So sometimes we might just use reason improperly. Um, you know, there's actually been a lot of discussion on this, and there's been a lot of uh, research and work done on this. And this is what's been called by philosophers and epistemologists the epistemology of disagreement on these issues. Now, I don't know just a whole lot of epistemologists on disagreement, but I do know a couple of theologians who have surveyed that literature ad nauseum. And they have shown how helpful it is for thinking theologically. And speaking of that, I just cannot recommend enough on this issue. The book written by Ryan Putman, my doctor of otter. Um, it was his second book called When Doctrine Divides the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity. And he talks a lot about the epistemology of disagreement and why it is that people such as you and I, who are committed to the infallibility of the scriptures, the inerrancy of the scriptures, the the need for reason, the need for tradition, why we can both do those things and you still be Anglican and I still be Baptist. He yeah, thought, I have, so he thought, why? 
And so, uh, sure, sure, know, yeah. I, I, and I, and I really can't require that, recommend that book enough. I actually require my undergraduate students in my Christian theology mm. course, mm. To take it, and I'm going to be requiring my systematic theology two students in the spring uh, to read that book. Um, so that's why. I, I need to read that book. I have that book. In fact, I think he yeah. signed it for me a long time ago. I, I have not read it yet. Great book. I got to yeah. read it before he published it. Yeah, I've uh, heard it was that, great. Yeah. So, so again, that, for the people listening, that's called When Doctrine Divides the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity, published by Fortress, right? Uh, Crossway. Crossway. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Crossway. And the author is Ryan R. Putman, R-H-Y-N-E, Putman, not Putnam, Putman. Cool. So, so from yeah. what I'm hearing you say here is that the plurality of views within the wider Christian family, I mean, you would you would you would say it's probably a good thing. Yeah, I think it can be. Um, it can be a good thing. Yeah, I say it can be. Sure. Um, I think so. And and I want to emphasize here, I really care a lot as Paul did about the unity of the church, and I want us to be as united in as many things as we possibly can, especially on what's essentials and fundamentals. Problem is that often as Christians, we're not, we're not even agreed upon what are the fundamentals. So we can't even agree there, much less we can't agree on the fundamentals if we can't even agree what they are. Um, but I do want to say this. None of us have any more claim to the truth than the other does. Um, you and I have the same access to the truth as one another. You do not have a privileged viewpoint. I would even say that even the great fathers of the past are not even privileged to know the truth any more than we are. It doesn't belong to one tradition or denomination to be the ultimate authority on God's revelation in history and scripture. And so I think our differences actually can help us become more aware of our own horizons of understandings by my thinking, man, you know, Matt's a smart guy. He's smarter than I am. Why is he an Anglican and I'm not? Why is it he restricting against us? So it can help by... I'm not smarter than you do. Just so people know, Andrew's way smarter than me. That's that's not true. Don't listen. You know what? Just don't listen to any more of Matt's podcast. He's (laughs) he's a liar. He is smarter than me. But my point, though, is this. By becoming aware of our differences and focusing on where we differ and why we differ, this can help us become more aware of our own horizons of understandings, our own prejudgments, our own pre-understandings. And Mm -hmm. being aware of this can help us better navigate the hermeneutic circle of scripture and theology, I think. So actually, I think plurality can be good in this sense. So in some ways, the diversity of traditions actually can help us all move forward towards more unity. You can't, and again, I want to emphasize, I think it's remember to, and I really want to emphasize this, and I think this is uh, something that works better for us Baptists than it does the, you confessional thinkers like, like you Anglicans, jab, jab. <laughs> but I think it's really important to remember that unity is not the same as uniformity, and Paul's emphasis is on unity, not uniformity. That's so good. Um, so good. Yeah, and I think I think Baptists are a little positioned to facilitate that better than than you, you treacherous Anglicans. <laughs> Again, I say that being I might be one of those Baptists who is more, the most <laughs> sympathetic to Anglicanism as as anyone else. You uh, come so. come to church anytime, and you, we can share the Eucharist together. So <laughs> you go to church? I'm just kidding. I Matt do go to church. Goes, yeah, it's a new Matt thing. Goes to church and it's kids. a new thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, I think, um, yeah, it, yeah, I think, I think it's so important to keep, keep in mind what you said about uniformity that you're right. I mean, God calls us to unity. We cannot compromise that. He does not call us to uniformity. It's like totally fine with me 
if someone has a different view of eschatology than I do. Now I'm gonna squibble and squabble, you know, if you know, in a in a debate, I enjoy good debates as anybody does, but you know, I, I it's okay to have different viewpoints and we want to be kind with one another and charitable. Now, of course, this doesn't mean anything goes. If we if somebody has a view of eschatology that's damaging or harmful to somebody, and there are views of eschatology that are very damaging, I think. Um, you know, we want to say something and we want to stand up against that. If there are views of a doctrine of God that are that could just genuinely leave people astray, we we have to stand against that. But within the Christian tradition itself, um, there's a lot of room for movement. There's a lot of room for exploration, kind of like we were talking about the different models uh, earlier. You know, mm-hmm. we we put together ideas and try to, you know, present coherent ideas and um, we, you know, we have many tools in our toolbox that we can draw from. And so anyway, I, just, I, I guess I just want, this is, this is why I like this, because as called to unity, what unity means is not that we merely come together for kumbaya moments, but that we also come together to, um, to have, you know, moments of growth and education and even disagreement, like, like we have to allow room for the other voice and to, we have to allow room for other people to say their, their spill and, and, and then we have to have time to respond to that. And so this idea of a conversation is, is I think very important to developing that unity. And so I think disagreement can actually, contrary to what some people might think, disagreement can actually facilitate unity if it's done well. This is why I think one of the reasons that, um, the most fundamental unit of society that we see according to the Bible is the family. And I know I'm going to be a little eisegetical here, but bear with me. I'm just a philosopher. (laughs) But I think the idea of the family table is really captures what I'm after when I say unity, not uniformity. When my family comes together at Christmas and we sit around the Christmas dinner table, we're going to differ on certain issues about what the Bible says. We're going to disagree over issues of politics. We're going to disagree over issues of maybe ethics. Not usually. We're going to disagree over which Christmas movies we should watch at night. We're going to disagree over a lot of things. But we still come together, united as a family around the table and love for one another. Mm. And I think that when because I think I think the family is a great picture of unity in diversity. To, yeah, to, that's good. to steal to to kidnap uh james dunn's phrase unity and diversity so yeah that's a that's and as good. a church we are a family we are the yes. family of Yahweh. we are god's family mm-hmm. and so we come to this table it's a, and it's a big table sometimes it might be bigger than we may prefer it to be mm-hmm. but we come from the table despite our differences mm-hmm. yeah so. yeah well hey i, I just want to um well, but I guess before we wrap up here, um, maybe toss out a, re- a good book, good resource for the listeners that you would recommend. You know, if if their listeners listening to this and they're like, "Man, you know, I'm I'm in nothing but biblical studies because all I do is listen to Matt's podcast." <laughs> um, you know, but I'm really interested after listening to Andrew to read theology and you know where where what's a good intro? What's a good book? A uh, good resource for theology and or theological method? What would you recommend? Yeah, so for a great introductory text, uh, I'm going to shout out to my Dr. Vader, Ryan Putman, again. He has published with B&H a very helpful little textbook called The Method of Christian Theology. I require it for my Systematic Theology 1 students. Um, 
It's a very helpful book. I, I really recommend that. And then I would also on the dialogue of scripture and tradition and the role of like scripture and the highest authority, what that means. I would have to recommend, and this might be a little bit more advanced, but it's still work though. It's a great book. John Peckham's book, Canonical Theology. And uh, it's it's a really helpful book. I think John and I are very much on the same page as far as, you know, when we talk about um, how the biblical canon has the ultimate role of authority and, and a very pragmatic way of how that can, that book is, is super helpful. And I would give out a third book because I do tend to be more of an analytic theologian. Um, Thomas McCall has a very helpful little invitation to, to analytic theology. Mm-hmm. And it's called An Invitation to Christian Analytic Theology with IVP. Great little helpful book. So those three books, The Method of Christian Theology by Ryan Putman, Canonical Theology by John Peckham, and Invitation to Analytic to Christian Analytic Theology or Analytic Christian Theology by Thomas McCall. Yeah, uh, Tom McCall, I, um, I've met him once. I actually have that book. I have not read it yet, but um, I met him at the Tyndale conference in Cambridge in England. It, it was a lot of fun. Um, and he, he's such a great thinker, a churchman. Um, mm-hmm. everybody should, should, you know, follow him on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. I, I don't, I think he's on Twitter. Um, on- he is. Okay. Yeah. He's just such a neat guy. He probably doesn't remember, but we had, we had a fun conversation about some stuff and, and, and as I, me and, um, our, our mutual friend Chandler Warren, we were there at, at that conference and, this is a few years ago, but it was a lot of fun being in such a historic place such as Cambridge University for the Tyndale Conference and sitting around talking to a, a wonderful theologian, uh, Christian. Hey, I've got a I've got a book I want to recommend to you, dude. Hey, one second. Can I, I, want, yeah. I was number one more I wanted to get. I, I really enjoyed this book when I was a doctoral student. It's actually an edited book by Joel Green and Max Turner, and it's called mm-hmm. Between Two Horizons, Spanning New Testament Studies and Systematic Theology. It's a really, really good book. Joel Green is amazing. Yeah, for sure. Hey, yeah, the book I want to recommend to you um, is yeah, called Simply know. Anglican. <laughs> I've actually, you you I need actually, to read that. I'm going to buy that book and send it to you. <laughs> so, so, one of the, so with my son, I mentioned oh, he's 14 months old. I actually do intend yeah. to catechize William when he's you know old enough to A, know that he exists and B, <laughs> words. But, you know, I, I was looking at catechisms and, you know, Baptists, we, we don't really have good catechisms. The best we have is the one that was uh, Benjamin Keech's that went with the uh, 1689 Confession. But I'm just not that reformed. So I actually found what's arguably now I, I have differences with it and I'll teach Williams some different things into it. But actually sure. the one that uh, J.I. Packer oversaw, that's actually an Anglican catechism called yeah. To Be a Christian. To Be a Christian. It's free online, folks, if you want to check it out. It's a PDF online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you can get the hardback. The, the book is good, good too. That's kind of that's kind of like simply Anglican, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah. So, well, hey man, Andrew, I just want to say thanks again for your time. Uh, we've known each other for years and it's always fun to chat. I learn something every time we talk. Um because you're smarter than me. <laughs> Throw that one back out there. Uh, <laughs> but uh yeah, thanks so much for uh taking time to to chat about all things theology and we gotten into Christology and tradition and reason and theology proper. And so anyway, man, thanks for being on the show. And thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's been a real pleasure being on. And as always, I always enjoy talking with people smarter than me. <laughs> we'll, ne- we'll never get over this. Maybe, maybe we're both just dumb. Maybe we just need to get over the, 
<laughs> calling you to that's, it. We're bo- that, that's the truth. That's we are both dumb. Plausible. You know what? It it's may, so plausible. You know what? Either A, let's, let's use logic here. A, okay. either A, Matthew is smarter than Andrew. B, Andrew is smarter than Matthew. Or C, neither of them are smart at all, but they can't both be smarter than each other. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say this. We'll end on this. I think you can agree with this. Are you ready? Alvin Plantiga is is the smartest. How's that? Man, that's that's very possibly true. He's really smart. (laughs) Oh, it's necessarily true. (laughs) All right, Matt. Maybe not necessarily. This is not an episode on modality, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Let's throw up modal logic. Well, in the spirit of Alvin Plantiga, we'll talk about modal logic here. Yeah. They well, anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. People, you guys got to read Alvin Plantinga too. He's another great philosopher. Great, great Christian philosopher. But all right, man. Well, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. That's the end of today's episode. And thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends. Thank you.